The question I want to ask you is this. How many decisions do you think the average adult makes in a typical day? Yeah, just take a guess. How many decisions? I heard the answer here. Somebody knows the answer. <laughs> Uh, naturally, with this kind of thing, it's a little bit hard to, to nail down the exact number, but various internet sources, right, and you know you can believe them, uh, various internet sources, they say that the average adult makes about 35,000 decisions each and every day. 35,000 decisions each and every day. Now, if you do the math, and of course, I'm going to do the math, right? If you do the math, that means you're going to make about 800 million decisions between the ages of 18 and 80. Okay, so if the average adult makes 35,000 decisions a day between the ages of 18 and 80, that multiplies out to about 800 million decisions. Now, I think a lot of these decisions are easy and trivial and don't require a lot of thinking, but there are some decisions that are more difficult, and there are some decisions that are important, and they have consequences, and they might change the trajectory of our lives. I want to talk about decisions today, especially the non-trivial ones that we have to make. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, the Bible says that whatever we do as Christians, we should do it all for the glory of God. And if we're going to live out that calling, if we're going to glorify God in all that we do, then we need to know how to glorify God in the decisions that we make. But do you know what we often do when we have a decision to make? So many times when we have a decision to make, we leave God out of the picture. Rather than consult with God, we often make big, important, life-altering decisions based on our feelings or based on our intuition, what we might call our gut instinct. Or sometimes we might make decisions based on the advice of, of someone who doesn't know God or doesn't believe that the Bible is God's word. I think a lot of times we make decisions based on what's popular in the culture. We look at what some famous person is doing and we say, well, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. That's what I'm doing. Now, if we make decisions like this, if we leave God out of the picture when we have a decision to make, do you know what's going to happen? If we make decisions like this and leave God out of the picture, we're going to end up making a lot of decisions that fail to glorify God. And sooner or later, we're going to end up regretting those decisions. And this is true not only for us as individuals. This is also true for us collectively as a church. Churches has this, have decisions to make too. Now, as we continue our study in the book of Acts today, I want to talk to you about glorifying God in the decisions that we make. Decisions that we make as individuals, but also decisions that we make collectively as a church. As we continue our study in the book of Acts today, we're going to see that right after Jesus ascended into heaven, the first followers of Jesus, the group that would soon become the church, right after Jesus ascended into heaven, the first followers of Jesus had to make a couple of really important decisions. Now we're going to see what those decisions were, and we're going to see that these first followers of Jesus did everything they could possibly do to ensure that they were glorifying God in those decisions. So what were the decisions that these first followers of Jesus had to make? How did they seek to glorify God in those decisions? Well, let's turn to the scriptures and see what the scripture says. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it out and open it up to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And as you're turning in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, 
Let me remind you that last week when we started our series on the book of Acts, we looked at the first half of chapter 1. And in the first half of Acts chapter 1, we saw that right before Jesus ascended back into heaven, he commanded his followers to be his witnesses all around the world. Jesus commanded his followers to continue the work that he had started when he was here on this earth, the work of expanding God's kingdom. And Jesus told these followers to wait until they received the Holy Spirit before they went out and did that work. Jesus told them to wait for the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit would give them God's presence and God's power. And, and without God's presence and God's power, there was no way that they could be effective witnesses for Jesus. And so these disciples, they start waiting for the Holy Spirit just as Jesus commanded them. And what we're going to see is that as they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, and as they were waiting to go out and begin this work that God had called them to do, they had to make a couple of important decisions. So let's go to the Bible now and let's see what those decisions were. And let's see how these first followers of Jesus were seeking to glorify God in those decisions. So I'm going to read Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 26, and then we'll talk about what we can learn from it. So if you're able, would you please stand as I read God's holy and inspired word for us this morning? This is what the scripture says in Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 12. It says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120 in all. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akodama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would bless the reading of your word this morning, that you would open our hearts to understand the truth that you've given to us here and how it applies to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> so after Jesus rose from the dead and commanded his followers to be his witnesses, he ascended back into heaven. And Luke tells us at the beginning of this passage in verse 12 that this happened on the Mount of Olivet. And this is a mountain that is just outside of the city of Jerusalem. 
When Luke tells us in verse 12 that the Mount of Olivet is a Sabbath day journey away from Jerusalem, he's telling us it's about three-fourths of a mile outside the city. You see, this distance is called a Sabbath day journey because the Jewish rabbis said that this is the furthest distance one could walk without it being considered work. And since the Sabbath day was supposed to be a day of rest on which no work was done, this was the farthest that the rabbi said you could walk on the Sabbath without violating it. And so this distance of three-fourths of a mile, that became known as a Sabbath day journey. And we see in verse 12 that after Jesus ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olivet, his followers walked this three-fourths of a mile back into the city of Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit, because that's what Jesus had commanded them to do. In verse 13, it lists the names of these first followers of Jesus. And if you count these names, you'll see that there are 11 men who are listed here. These men, they're often referred to as Jesus' apostles. In fact, that's what Luke called them at the beginning of chapter 1. If you look back at verse 2, you'll see that Luke referred to them as Jesus' apostles. And generally speaking, the word apostle means one who is sent. Now, in a narrower sense, the word apostle can be used to refer to someone who has received a special authority from Jesus. And and I think that's the way Luke is using the word here, in this more narrow sense. Now, you might be sitting there and you might be saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Eleven, eleven apostles? I thought there were twelve apostles. In Sunday school growing up, they always told us there were twelve apostles. So what's going on here? Well, here's what's going on. There were two apostles named Judas. There was Judas, the son of James, who is in the list in verse 13. And then there was Judas Iscariot, who is not mentioned in verse 13. Judas Iscariot is not mentioned in verse 13 because... He committed suicide right after Jesus was condemned to death. You see, Judas was one of those who followed Jesus around for the three years, but he struggled with greed. And one day for 30 pieces of silver, Judas agreed to help the chief priests arrest Jesus. The chief priests, they they felt threatened by Jesus in his ministry because as time went on, the people started to gravitate more towards Jesus and, and Jesus was becoming more popular than them. And so they felt threatened. Uh, They felt threatened by Jesus in his ministry. And so they were always looking for a way to arrest Jesus and, and ultimately kill him to eliminate the threat. Well, for 30 pieces of silver, Judas agreed to help them out. And he did. With Judas's help, the chief priests, they arrested Jesus and they, they brought him before the Roman governor Pilate and they falsely accused Jesus of being against Caesar. And Pilate sentenced Jesus to death for that. And when Judas Iscariot saw this, when he found out about this, he felt bad. He regretted his decision to betray Jesus because he knew that Jesus was innocent. And rather than turning to God and seeking forgiveness from God, Judas ran out and hanged himself. So that's why there's only 11 apostles listed in verse 13. It's because Judas Iscariot is gone at this point. Now these 11 remaining apostles... Okay, they're waiting for God to send the Holy Spirit to them. And they have a couple of important decisions to make as they wait. Should they replace Judas and bring the number of apostles back to 12? Or should they just go forward with the 11 of them? And if they do decide to replace Judas, who should they tap to be his replacement? 
These are the big decisions that the 11 apostles are facing right now as they wait. And what we see in this passage is that the apostles, they sought to glorify God by making a decision that was in accordance with his will. And that brings me to the main point that I'm going to want to make in the message today. As we discuss this passage that I just read, the the main point that I want to make is this. Because Christians are called to glorify God in all that they do, we should seek to make decisions in accordance with God's will. Because Christians are called to glorify God in all that they do. We, we as individuals, but also we collectively as a church, should seek to make decisions in accordance with God's will. Now, how do we do that? How do we make decisions that glorify God? How do we make decisions that are in accordance with God's will? Well, when these first followers of Jesus had to make a couple of big decisions, they brought God into the decision-making process in at least five different ways. And if we want to make decisions that glorify God, if we want to make decisions in accordance with God's will, I think we should do the same. So how should we bring God into our decision-making process? Let me give you five ways. First, we should ask God, we should ask for God's help. Okay, if we want to make decisions that glorify God, if we want to make decisions that are in accordance with God's will, then we should ask for God's help. Verse 14 says that during this time of waiting, the apostles were devoting themselves to prayer. And it wasn't just the 11 apostles who were devoting themselves to prayer. Verse 14 says that the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers were there too. And they too were devoting themselves to prayer. The women that Luke mentions here, most likely these are some of the women who had accompanied Jesus and his apostles as they traveled around proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Luke tends to highlight the role of women in his gospel and in the book of Acts as a way to to show their value and importance in the kingdom of God. For example, if you go back to Luke's gospel in chapter 8, at the beginning of Luke chapter 8, he tells us that as Jesus and the apostles were traveling from village to village proclaiming the kingdom of God, that there was a, a group of women who accompanied them and they provided for Jesus and the apostles' means it's quite likely that these are the women that Luke is referring to when he says that the women were there with the apostles and devoting themselves to prayer. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, she was there too, as were his brothers. Yes, contrary to what some people teach, Jesus had brothers. After Mary supernaturally conceived Jesus' aversion and gave birth to him, the Bible indicates that she and Joseph went on to have other children in the natural way. Mark tells us in chapter 6, verse 3 of his gospel, the names of Jesus' brothers. They were James, Judas, Joses, and Simon. So there was a nice-sized group that was gathered here in this room, and Luke tells us that they were with one accord in praying, devoting themselves to prayer. With one accord means that they were unified as they were there waiting for the Holy Spirit. And when it says that they were devoting themselves to prayer, that means that they were praying regularly and steadfastly. Prayer was the primary characteristic that defined this group at this time. Today we would call them prayer warriors. Now Luke doesn't tell us exactly what this group was praying for, but when you consider the context of this passage, I think we can take a couple of pretty good guesses about what they were praying for. 
First, I bet they were praying for God to deliver on his promise to send the Holy Spirit. God was, they were probably also praying that God would strengthen them as they waited. It's hard for us to wait. They were no different. They were people too. It was hard for them to wait, especially when they didn't know how long they were going to have to wait. So they were probably praying for God to send the Holy Spirit, and they were praying for God to strengthen them as they waited. But in addition to that, I think they were probably also praying for God to help them to know what to do about replacing Judas Iscariot. As I said earlier, this was a big decision that they were facing. And so I bet they were asking God to help them know what they should do about it. It's not always easy for us human beings to ask for help. For the past 18 years, I taught math at Baltimore City Community College. And during that time, I was required to maintain five office hours every week. Okay, so these five hours were times when I would be in my office and I would be available for my students so that they could come and ask for help with their assignments. Now, I went back and counted it up, and I think I taught about 4,000 students over the 18 years that I was at the college. And I estimate that about 99.5% of them never once came to ask for help, even though they almost all needed it. Some were too busy to come and ask for help. Some had too much pride to come and ask for help. Some were afraid to come and ask for help. And some simply didn't care enough about their grade to come and ask for help for a variety of reasons. For a variety of reasons, so many students chose not to ask for help. And they suffered for it. Over and over again, I would tell my students that I was available to help them and that I was happy to help them. But so many times, they failed to come and ask for help. I guess that shouldn't surprise me. When I was a college student working on my engineering degree, I never went to my professors and asked them for help even though I needed it. For me, it was a mixture of pride and fear that kept me from going and asking for their help, even though they said over and over again that they were there to provide it. Church, when we have a decision to make, whether it's a decision we're making as an individual or if it's a decision that we're making as a church, if we want to glorify God in that decision, we can't let anything stop us from going to God and asking for his help. God wants us to come to him. God wants us to come and ask for his help and for his guidance. We know that God wants us to come to him. How do we know it? Because God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die a horrific death on a cross so that the sin that was separating us from God would be forgiven. God sent his son, Jesus, to open the doors so that we can come to him for help. We just need to take that step and go to him. We need to go to God as individuals. We also need to go to God collectively as a church. Now, individually, we can go to God and we can ask for his help anytime, anywhere. But what about going to God collectively as a church? Maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, how can I do that? How can I be involved in praying collectively with my church family to seek God and ask for his help? I can think of three great opportunities that you have here at City View Church to gather with other members of this church and pray collectively and ask for God's help. First, if you're involved in a city group, 
You can gather with your group each and every week and you can pray together, seeking God's help, seeking God's guidance. So if you're not in a city group, now's the time to join one so that you can pray together with a body of believers. You can also come here on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Every Sunday at 10 a.m., members of our prayer team, they gather in my office to pray together. They'd be thrilled to have you join them. I think it would be great if that group outgrew the space in my office. I think God would be thrilled too. And then we have prayer and praise nights. We're going to have a prayer and praise night here at the church next Sunday evening. And this is going to be a time for us to gather as a church to, to praise God together, but also to pray together, to seek God, to ask for his help and his guidance. So will you participate in these times of corporate prayer? Brothers and sisters, we've got some decisions to make as a church as we plan for 2024 and beyond. And if we want to glorify God in those decisions, if we want to make decisions that are in, in accordance with God's will, we've got to go to God and we've got to ask God for his help. So if we want to make decisions that glorify God, if we want to make decisions that are in accordance with his, Ill, with his will, we need to ask for God's help. But you know what else we need to do? We need to apply God's word. We need to apply God's word. In verse 15, as this group is waiting and praying, Peter gets up in front of the group, and Luke tells us that the group consisted of about 120 people at this point, and Peter begins to make a speech. I want you to notice the very first thing that Peter says. The very first thing that Peter says is in verse 16 and 17. He says, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. The scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Peter's been studying the scriptures. In just a minute, we're going to see that Peter was studying the Psalms. And Peter believes that the Psalms are part of God's holy and inspired word. We know this because in verse 16, Peter acknowledges that the Holy Spirit inspired King David to write those words in the Psalms that he was studying and reading. Now, as Peter was reading and studying the scriptures, he sees some things in God's word that speak to the decision that the apostles had to make regarding Judas. Luke then kind of calls time out in, in the passage here. Uh, in my translation of the Bible, there's a set of parentheses there, and he reminds us of what happened to Judas. We talked about that. And then in verse 20, Peter picks up the, the speech. Luke picks up the speech that Peter was making. In verse 20, uh, Peter quotes two passages of Scripture, two passages of Scripture that speak to this decision that the apostles are facing regarding what they should do about Judas Iscariot. And both quotes come from the book of Psalms. First, Peter quotes Psalm 69, verse 25, which says, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. Peter understands this verse to be speaking of Judas and, and the fact that his place among the apostles was now vacant. And then Peter quotes Psalm 109, verse 8, which says, Let another take his office. And Peter takes that verse to be God's instruction to them that they should replace Judas. And they should bring the number of apostles back up to 12. So what we see here is that when the apostles had a decision to make, Peter was reading and studying God's word so that he could apply God's word 
to that decision. And Peter did this. He, he read and studied God's word and he applied God's word to, to the decision that they were making because he believed two things about God's word. He believed that God's word is true and he believed that God's word is relevant. Do you know who Simon Cowell is? The creator of America's Got Talent. He's been a judge on that show ever since, ever since it started, I think, back in 2011. He was also involved in some other TV shows like American Idol. Well, a few years ago, Simon Cowell bought an electric bike. And he was so eager to test out the electric bike that he didn't bother reading the manual. Just hopped on the bike and turned on the power. And since he didn't read the manual, do you know what happened? He ended up giving the bike too much power. The bike popped a wheelie, which caught Simon by surprise, and he fell off the bike and landed flat on his back. And as soon as he hit the concrete, he knew something was wrong. Turns out Simon broke his back, and he had to undergo six hours of surgery to repair the damage. And when he came out of that procedure, the doctors told him, they said, Simon, you missed severing your spinal cord by a centimeter. One centimeter. That centimeter allowed Simon to make a full recovery, and it spared him from being paralyzed forever. And so once he was so far along in his recovery, Simon, he tweeted this. He said, here's some good advice. If you buy an electric bike, read the manual before you ride it for the first time. I'm sure Simon believed that the manual was true. I'm sure he believed that the manual was relevant. But for some reason, Simon chose not to read the manual. And what happened? He made a decision that almost left him paralyzed for the rest of his life. Church, we might believe that God's word is true. We might believe that God's word is relevant. But if we choose not to read and study God's word, we're going to end up making some poor decisions that we'll later regret. God reveals his will to us through his word. So if we want to make decisions in accordance with God's will, decisions that will glorify God, then we need to apply God's word. Now we should not only apply God's word, if we want to make decisions that are going to glorify God, we've got to do something else. We've got to apply God's wisdom. Do you know what wisdom is? Wisdom is the skill of applying the Bible rightly to each and every situation that you face in life. That's one way to describe wisdom. The skill of applying the Bible rightly to each and every situation that you face in life. Wisdom is different than knowledge. It's related to knowledge, but it's different. Knowledge is facts. Wisdom is knowing what to do with the facts. Now, if we want to make decisions that glorify God, if we want to make decisions in accordance with God's will, we not only need knowledge, we need wisdom. We not only need to know the facts of what God's word says, we need to know what to do with those facts. We need wisdom because... Well, let's face it, a lot of decisions that we have to, to make in life aren't directly addressed in the scriptures. So if we want to glorify God, we need not only to apply God's word, but we also need to apply God's wisdom. 
For example, the scriptures are clear that we should be reaching our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the scriptures don't tell us exactly how to do that. We need wisdom to figure that out. For Peter, the scriptures were clear that the apostles should replace Judas. But the scriptures never say exactly who that replacement should be. So Peter had to apply some of God's wisdom here. In verses 21 and 22, that's what we see. We see that Peter applies God's wisdom when he says that Judas's replacement has to be someone who accompanied Jesus and the other apostles from the time of Jesus' baptism until his ascension back into heaven. Judas's replacement would have to be somebody who was an eyewitness to Jesus' life and his miracles and his death and his resurrection. Now, Peter didn't get these qualifications from the Bible. Peter suggested these qualifications because he knew that the primary responsibility of an apostle would be to tell people about Jesus and his resurrection. And Peter knew that being an eyewitness would add credibility to, to the message that that person proclaimed. And it would also help that person persevere when the persecution came. Jesus had told his apostles that as they go out to be his witnesses, they would face persecution. And so given this knowledge of God's word, of what an apostle was charged to do and what an apostle would face, Peter applied God's wisdom and he established the qualifications for Judas's replacement. And by the way, just as an aside, those qualifications would prevent anybody from today from being an apostle in that narrow sense that we talked about earlier. Now, earlier I said wisdom is the skill of applying the Bible rightly to each and every situation that we face in life. If wisdom is a skill, if wisdom is a skill, then that means that we can acquire wisdom. It also means that we can grow and develop in wisdom. It's something we can get better at. Driving a golf ball so that it lands on the fairway. This is a skill that you can acquire and get better at. I have not acquired it. But if you want to acquire this skill, you can ask someone to give you lessons. And then you can go to the driving range and you can practice to develop that skill. In other words, there are steps that you can take to acquire and get better at the skill of driving a golf ball so that it lands on the fairway. It's the same with wisdom. There are steps that you can take to acquire and get better at wisdom, to get better at your ability to, to apply the Bible to each and every situation that you face in life, even those that aren't directly addressed in the scriptures. So what steps can you, can, what steps can you take if you want to acquire wisdom, if you want to get better at wisdom? Okay, well, the first step would be to fear the Lord. Fearing the Lord, that's where it all starts. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And fearing the Lord means that, that we're in awe of who God is, and it means that we want to live for his glory and for his honor. Fearing the Lord, that's where the, the process of acquiring wisdom starts. But then in addition to fearing the Lord, we should also ask God for wisdom. God is infinitely wise. And he wants to share his wisdom with his children. We just have to ask him for it. James 1.5 says that if any of us lack wisdom, we should ask God for it and he'll give it to us. 
But then how do we get better at wisdom? How do we grow in wisdom? Well, one way is when you have a decision to face, a tough decision that's not necessarily directly addressed in the scriptures, maybe falls into a kind of a gray area, consult with other mature Christians who have acquired wisdom. Talk to them about that decision. They might help you think through things and help you to see things in a different light, to help you you see things as God would see them. They can help you get better at seeing your situations from God's perspective. So if if we want to glorify God in the decisions we make, if we want to make decisions that are in accordance with God's will, we should seek God's wisdom and apply God's wisdom. And then the fourth, the fourth way that we can bring God into our decisions so that we make decisions that glorify him, that are in accordance with his will, the fourth way is to acknowledge God's sovereignty. Acknowledge God's sovereignty. After Peter applied God's word and after he applied God's wisdom, the apostles put forth two men who met the qualifications. Verse 23 says that one candidate was named Joseph, and he also went by the name Barsabbas, and he also went by the name Justice. Okay, so one guy with three names. And then the second candidate was a guy named Matthias. These two men had been with Jesus and the apostles from the time that Jesus was baptized until he ascended into heaven. And both of these men were witnesses, eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. So they were both qualified for the job. So who should get it? Well, before the apostles make their decision, I want you to notice how they acknowledge God's sovereignty in verses 24 to 26. First they pray and they say, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of Judas. The apostles, they're talking to Jesus in this prayer. In this context, when they say Lord, they're referring to Lord Jesus. And Jesus, the Son of God, right? Second person of the Trinity. The eleven asked Jesus to show them which one of these two men he has already chosen to be his apostle. You see, Jesus chooses his apostles, we don't. And these, under, these, 11, these 11 remaining apostles, they understood that in eternity past, Jesus had already decided who would be Judas's replacement. So they acknowledged that. And then they acknowledged God's sovereignty by casting lots to discern Jesus' choice. You know what it means to cast lots? Casting lots, it's like rolling the dice. What the people would do is they would take stones and they would write the names of the candidates. In this case, it would be uh, the two candidates, Joseph and Matthias. And they would put them in a jar, shake it, and whichever one rolled out first, that was the winner. In the Old Testament, casting lots was a, a common way for the people of God to determine God's will. It's mentioned over 40 times in the Old Testament. For example, if you go back and read through the book of Joshua, when the tribes of Israel came into the promised land, they cast lots to determine where God wanted each tribe to live. Now, if casting lots is like rolling dice, then it sounds like it would lead you to make a a random choice. It would lead to random outcomes. But in Proverbs 16.33, Solomon says this. He says, the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. 
So basically Solomon, and, and by the way, Solomon was the wisest person who ever lived because he asked God for wisdom and God gave him a big dose of it. Solomon says that even though casting lots look like, looks like it leads to, to random outcomes, it really doesn't. And it doesn't lead to random outcomes because God is sovereign over those lots and he makes them turn out according to his will. In other words, God ensured that the lots would turn out the way that he wanted them to turn out. So what do you think? Should we cast lots or roll some dice today to determine God's will? You know, let's say you're facing a big decision and you've applied God's word and you've applied God's wisdom and you've narrowed it down to two choices. Maybe you've applied for some jobs and it's, and it's come down to two choices. What do you think? Should you roll the dice and say, okay, God, if it's an even number, I'm going to go with option A. And if it's an odd number, I'm going to go with option B. I don't think this is the best way to, for us to determine God's will today. I know the people of God did it in the Old Testament, and I know Peter and the apostles did it here. But I don't think casting lots is the best way for us to determine God's will today. And I say that because we have, we have something, or, or more precisely, we have someone that the people in the Old Testament didn't have, and that Peter and the apostles didn't have at this point. You know what we have that they didn't? We have the Holy Spirit living within us. The people in the Old Testament didn't have the Holy Spirit living within them. And the Holy Spirit hadn't yet come to live inside of Peter and the other apostles. That's going to happen next week when we talk about Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Remember, they're waiting for God to send the Holy Spirit. So Peter and the apostles, they were making this decision while they were still waiting for the Holy Spirit. So they were doing what the people of God had always done, and that was cast lots. Now what's interesting, okay, what's interesting when you read through the New Testament, this is the very last time that you ever see the people of God casting lots. Once the Holy Spirit comes, the people of God relied on the Holy Spirit to guide them. And since we have the Holy Spirit living within us, when we have a decision to make, we can acknowledge God's sovereignty by trusting that the Holy Spirit will guide us according to the plan that God has decreed in eternity past. Now, the Holy Spirit will guide us in different ways. Every situation is different. So I can't exactly tell you what that, what that guidance will look like. But when we have a decision to make, we can trust that the Spirit will guide us in a way that will ensure that God's eternal plan comes to pass. Now, sometimes when we have a big decision to make, you know what we do? We worry that we're going to make the wrong choice and that we're going to mess up God's plan. We're going to derail the whole train. But I want to assure you this morning, we cannot mess up God's plan. God is sovereign, and God will guide us so that his perfect plan comes to pass. I recently read a, a blog post that was written by a lady named Abby McDonald. And she moved to a new place, and she was relying on her GPS to, to guide her everywhere she had to go around town. So I could relate to this. Well, one day, Abby was going somewhere in her new town, and her GPS got confused. And it left her stuck driving in circles in the middle of nowhere. She missed her appointment. She never reached her destination. Abby's plan didn't come to pass. 
That won't happen with God. God's plan will always come to pass. And when we have a decision to make, we can trust that he will guide us so that it does. Isaiah 58, 11 says that God will guide you always. When we have a decision to make, God will guide us so that his plan comes to pass. God will guide us so that his plan comes to pass because God is sovereign and nothing can stop God from accomplishing what he has planned to do. So if we want to glorify God in our decisions, if we want to make decisions that are in accordance with God's will, let's acknowledge God's sovereignty and let's trust that the Holy Spirit will guide us so that that plan comes to pass. And then there's one last way that we can bring God into our decision-making process. If we want to glorify God in our decisions, if we want to make decisions that are within his will, we need to accept God's answer. When we acknowledge God's sovereignty, when we ask God to help us, when we apply his word and his wisdom, and then when God shows up and shows us what he wants us to do, if we want to glorify God, we've got to accept his answer. When Matthias's lot came out, verse 26 tells us that he was numbered with the 11 apostles. In other words, the other 11 apostles, they accepted God's answer. They didn't argue with God and say, oh, God... We, we were really hoping that, that Joseph would be Judas's replacement, not Matthias. Like deep down, that's what we wanted. So, so we're just going to keep rolling the lots until, until Joseph's lot comes out, until we get what we want. They, they didn't do that. Without hesitation, without delay, they accepted God's answer. When God made it clear to them that Matthias was to be the one they should choose, they proceeded in faith and they accepted Matthias as Judas' replacement. And that's what we should do. When we ask God to show us what to do, when God answers that prayer, when God shows us what he wants, we should accept God's answer. And we should proceed in faith to do that thing that God has called us to do. Even if the answer isn't exactly the one that we were hoping God would give us, we still need to accept his answer. We still need to proceed in faith to do what he's called us to do. Now, church, I told you earlier that over the course of a lifetime, you'll make hundreds of millions of decisions. Some of those decisions will be more important and some will be less important. But I can tell you that the single most important decision that you will ever make in your life has to do with Jesus Christ. Will you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Will you choose to live your life for Jesus Christ? If you want to glorify God in all that you do, it starts with receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I want you to know that you can make that decision today. The Bible tells us that all of us have sinned against God. All of us have left God out of the picture at times. We've all made bad decisions that have dishonored God. We've lied. We've stolen. We've, we've lost our temper. We didn't do the good thing that we knew we were supposed to do. The Bible calls these bad decisions sin. And the Bible says that our sin separates us from God and, and it places us under his judgment. And if we never deal with our sin problem, the Bible says that we will spend eternity apart from God in a place called hell. And you can't solve this problem called sin on your own. You can't do enough good deeds to, to work your way out of the predicament that you're in because of your sin. 
the only hope that we have is to rely on God. And the good news is this. God has provided a solution to our sin problem. God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life, to be a perfect sacrifice that pays for your sin and for mine. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve when he died on the cross. And the Bible says that if you admit that you've sinned against God, if you turn from your sin and that you you put your faith in that sacrifice that Jesus made, that it was sufficient to pay for your sin, if you commit to following Jesus as your Lord, the Bible says if you do that, God will forgive you and your relationship with God will be restored and secured forever and ever. Friends, this is decision time. If you haven't already, will you make the decision to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? Don't wait till later today to do that. Do it now. I can assure you, the very best decision that you will ever make in your entire life would be the decision to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you are God. We thank you this morning, God, that you came to us. Lord, when we were lost, when we were dead in our sin, when we had no hope, no ability to to work our way out of the mess that we made, that you came to us to rescue us, to deliver us, to forgive us of our sin. We thank you for Jesus Christ who came and lived a perfect life among us to reveal your love, your mercy, your grace to us. Ultimately, Lord, to stretch his hands out on a cross and to die for us so that we could be forgiven and so that we can have access to your throne and so that when we face decisions, Lord, whether it's decisions we face as individuals or decisions we face as a church, we thank you for that access that we have to your throne so that we can come and ask for for your help. We thank you for your word that you've given us, Lord. Your word is truth. And it's relevant, Lord. It's relevant. Even though it was written thousands of years ago, it still speaks to us today. It's alive. Your word is living and active. And we thank you, Lord, for your wisdom. God, you are infinitely wise, and we thank you that you share your wisdom with your children. And so, Lord, I pray that we would seek your wisdom in those areas where we have decisions to make. And, Lord, we know that you're sovereign over all and that your perfect plan is going to come to pass, and we rest in that, we find peace in that. And, Lord, I pray that when you show us the answer, when you show us the direction that you would have us to go, that we would accept that and proceed in faith to do it. And Lord, this morning, if you're calling anyone here to make that decision to follow Jesus, I pray that they would do that now and that they would let someone know. Father, we love you and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.